Movies entertain. Entertainment leads to emotions. Those emotions connect us to our enjoyment of film. And that is why we exist. To focus more on the emotional connection than the technical merit. Because every movie makes us feel something. Welcome, everyone, to the Feelin' Film Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Aaron, and here with me for tonight's conversation is my best friend and co-host, Patrick. Ha! For this fourth and final episode of this year's Director Battle Month, our awesome Facebook discussion group members chose David Fincher's 1995 crime thriller, Seven... I, I can't... I don't know if there's a way to pronounce it. Seven... Seven... Which it's eerily similar thematically to the film that they chose for us to cover last week, No Country for Old Men. Before we get started, though, we need to check out how we did on our predictions for this quadrant of the competition. To remind our listeners, we made picks for how we thought the voting would go, and we get one point for a right answer. We keep it pretty simple. Whoever has the most points at the end of the month will buy the loser a pop figure. I am currently leading 31 to 29 after three rounds. And so now we will find out who won. My right. only takeaway for this, I'm just going to give a little spoiler, is probably uh, probably similar to how I feel about my bracket. Which is? Pessimistic. <laughs> That's pretty funny. Well, I don't know. We'll see. I'm only up by two, man. Here's how okay. the voting shook out for this fourth and final quadrant. In the Hayao Miyazaki bracket, we had... Princess Mononoke beating My Neighbor Totoro in an incredibly fierce and uh, <laughs> very vocal fight on the Facebook group page. We had Howl's Moving Castle beating Kiki's Delivery Service, The Hurt Locker over Point Break, Zero Dark Thirty over Near Dark in the dark bracket for Catherine Bigelow. Then we got to David Fincher and we had Seven over Zodiac, another close one. Fight Club over Gone Girl. There went my favorite pick of the entire tournament. I was really kind of hoping we would get to talk about Gone Girl. It was a long shot. Then we had our Tony Scott quadrant, and we had Crimson Tide beating The Last Boy Scout and Man on Fire beating Days of Thunder. And the next round, we had Princess Mononoke beat Howl's Moving Castle, Zero Dark Thirty beating The Hurt Locker, Seven beating Fight Club, and Crimson Tide beating Man on Fire. The final four, it was Princess Mononoke over Zero Dark Thirty and Seven over Crimson Tide. And then here we are today. You already know Seven beats Princess Mononoke. Uh, and that was also hotly contested. The Princess Mononoke fans came out in force in the Facebook group this year. I don't know what the heck was going on, but that movie was just, I, I had a lot of love behind it. It was the Truman Show of the bracket, I think, right? Yeah, exactly. Uh, something we didn't necessarily expect to make a long run, but certainly did. I know I had My Neighbor Totoro picked against seven in the final two, and so for Mononoke to take out My Neighbor Totoro in the first round, it was pretty painful for me. <laughs> so what did you end up with in, in your bracket? Well, I that is I did really well. Other than that, I got them all right, pretty much. Okay. Um, I <laughs> had 11 correct out of... 15 what did you end up with i ended up with six out of 15 it was a terrible bracket oh my goodness gracious the whole top half with with miyazaki just completely screwed me i was just basically going okay i didn't get any of those and then 
I will say this. I, I think that I should get half points, which, you know, wouldn't matter because you would get half points too for this, for at least picking the correct director. Like my director stayed sound. I ended up with, with a Miyazaki and a Fincher in the final, but unfortunately neither one was the, was the, I mean, it's pretty decent odds that that would happen. I'd say like what one in four or something chances, maybe maybe one in eight. I don't know. Give me some love here. I'm trying to I'm trying to reclaim some dignity here. Fair enough. Well, I so, guess that makes the uh, final score forty two to thirty five. Yeah. So and so for the sake of posterity, here is my loser bracket right here. I'm right. showing. I'm, I'm looking at a piece of paper that I can't read. It says loser on it because we have. I don't, Film blur turned on in our background. Oh, that's true. That's true. Sorry. <laughs> but that's okay. I'll that's put it okay. In my face. My I face. trust you because it doesn't matter what it looks like. You have to buy me a pop, and I love that. It makes me very happy. I have to get you a pop. I don't necessarily have to buy you one. Wait. Well, what are you gonna do? Like, <laughs> go to the Goodwill, and well, I guess you'd still have to buy it there. There's a Freddie Freeman pop in one of the Atlanta baseball nights. I've heard some. <laughs> if you went to an Atlanta baseball night and you were able to be one of the lucky ones to get a pop giveaway, I'm pretty sure you wouldn't send me your Atlanta Braves pop figure. You're right. I would find some <laughs> cheap one and be like, "All right, here's a, <laughs> here's another one." Yeah, and if you did, okay. you'd probably troll me by sending me like an LSU pop or something stupid like that. That I would not do that to you. I, I would not. Not not until football season starts. At least. <laughs> hey, next week, buddy. That's right. All right. Well, we have one other quick announcement. Um, if you listened to our FF Plus episode this past week, I already said this and you've already heard this, so I'm going to try and make it brief. But for our long-term listeners, we wanted to let you know uh, we have an opportunity to be represented on the Rotten Tomatoes platform. They just changed what was required. It used to be 200 reviews on iTunes or I guess what's now known as Apple Podcasts. That's really tough for podcasts to get to because People like you, listeners, don't want to stop what you're doing, go sit down at a computer on iTunes and write out a review. Well, they've since changed that, and now it's 200 ratings. So all you have to do is click a star rating. It's four or five. That's what they need to see. Hit submit, and you're done. That's it. You can contribute to our ability to eventually be represented on Rotten Tomatoes. We would love to do that just to help bring attention to our brand of film criticism and the way that we like to approach movies from an emotional perspective. So if you're a longtime listener and you love the show, we're asking that you take the couple of minutes to go to Apple Podcasts online or iTunes or whatever it is, you can get to it on your phone if you're an iOS user. Click four or five stars, hit submit, and help us out. All right, with that being said, Patrick, it is time to get into our one-word takeaways. Actually, I'm going to give a quick spoiler alert. So spoiler alert, if you haven't seen Seven, wow, uh, okay, that's pretty shocking, but hey, you know, we won't judge you. Anyway, we are going to spoil the heck out of this movie, and there's plenty to be spoiled. So if you haven't seen it, please do yourself a favor and turn away right now and go see it. If you have, here we go. Patrick, you've already given away your one more takeaway, so I'll let you just carry on with that. Yeah, watching this movie, I really didn't have any kind of hope leaving the my, my latest experience of it, although I didn't feel any different the first time I, see, I, I saw this back in like the late 90s or when it came out. Uh, it definitely still holds up. It's one of those, I guess you could call it a, a classic because of the fact that it's still holding water even almost 20 plus years later. But I think David Fincher does a fantastic job of putting us into a movie and a setting, this film noir kind of flavor where we have this just overcast of grays, muted colors. 
and it seems like it's always raining. And the whole tone of the movie really sets you up early on for a story that doesn't feel like it's going to have a happy ending. And he kind of tells us at the very beginning that that's okay, that this is life. And we're going to walk you through this procedural drama in a way that allows you to just experience what it's like to be real. There are movies out there that I think do that really well. Manchester by the Sea is one of those that doesn't pull any punches when it comes to its emotional weight. I think in the same way cinematically Seven does this in that Fincher's not trying to create something happy, create a sense of silver lining from this. He's saying, this is what it is, and here are the characters I'm going to play with in this world. And even though my word is pessimistic, I think it was intentionally pessimistic. And I, I, I think that Fincher does a masterful job of being able to bring that out, not only in the characters, in the scenery, in the script. Everything seems to come together in a movie like this to bring that kind of emotional weight to it. So pessimistic for me. All right. Well, I completely agree with you. And my word is actually fairly similar. It is bleak. You know, one of the definitions of bleak is actually not hopeful or encouraging, unlikely to have a favorable outcome, which is pessimistic and precisely how I felt watching this movie again. I feel like right from the shockingly creepy credits scene, this is just a film that never lets up in its tension that's building in this story. And it has this feeling like there's not going to be that happy ending. So we definitely came away from this the exact same way. Even Somerset says it right out a few times. I don't know if it's called foreshadowing, but he talks about how this is a bad first assignment for Mills. And he talks later about how this is only going to end poorly. There is no scenario where this goes okay. Everything about how the movie is shot is super immersive. It's always dark and raining, as you pointed out. Um, it's grays. In a lot of ways, I actually picked up on like a, a Blade Runner feel to it because of the darkness and the rain minus the neon. It's so, like you said, film noir. And the entire story matches that visual style because it's dark, it's twisted, and it's tackling this question of whether the world is even worth fighting for for these characters. I really, really love this movie uh, because Fincher draws you into this genre, I think, like nobody else can. He really is a master at it. it so it's bleak as hell, um, and it stays lingering in the pit of your stomach for a while after you watch it. And he, that means he's done a fantastic job and he's succeeded at what he was trying to accomplish. Well, like I said, I think Fincher makes great crime thrillers. You've got Seven, you've got Zodiac and Gone Girl, both were in our polls. To some extent, you even have The Game and The Social Network. In a lot of ways, feels similar, minus the blood and the guts. All are slightly different, but he's able to achieve that immersion I talked about in a very cynical world with real evil in it. Not fantastical, unbelievable evil, but true evil. Like, just on the verge of like, oh my gosh, that could happen, right? So I'm wondering, what do you think about Seven helps it be become what really was like the standard for this genre? Like what sets it apart? Morgan Freeman. And I say that kind of tongue in cheek, but I, but I think so that good. what he is. But I think if you think about the fact that his voice really sends out this 
monotone, low, almost, I won't call it easygoing, but it feels very seasoned. It's calming, yeah. It's calming, but it feels very seasoned is the word I can think of. It feels wise. Yeah. I would say it's a, it's a voice that feels like it's been through a lot. And when he speaks, you feel like you need to listen. I mean, this is the same voice that teaches us about the galaxies and the stars, and it's fantastic. And so obviously you have to have a fantastic screenplay to go with that. But I think having somebody like Freeman as your lead character, the way in which he emotes, the way in which he doesn't smile at all, and the way in which he delivers his lines puts you into this moment with him, puts you into this world that you could tell he's been living this for years and years and years, and he is worn down. I mean, he is a week away from retirement, and at the beginning of the movie, he's just ready to kind of get out of it. Now, he wants to finish strong, and so we get a lot from those opening sequences about who he is. We get about a little bit of his his history, but we also find out that he's very much committed to his job, even though he has kind of this pessimistic outlook on it, because he has seen so much, and he's not just phoning it in. He really wants to put whatever he needs to put to bed to bed. But I think as a lead character, he brings with his performance that which Fincher needs. He needs that elder, that seasoned, that historically drawn-in character who has seen a lot and is able to mentor uh, Pitt's character Mills in a way because he's this hot shot guy that's coming in ready to uh, ready to take on the world and he needs somebody like Somerset to kind of put him in his place. But I think you know Morgan Freeman kind of stands out as as kind of the linchpin to all this. Yeah, I mean I would agree that cast is extremely key and Fincher does that well in his movies specifically. I think. Really, Freeman and Pitt together is what makes it work so well, in my opinion, because of the way that they play off of each other. I mean, you have two just top tier, you know, A-list actors here. And I mean, A-list in terms of talent, not necessarily in terms of popularity even, but they are incredible in the way that they move through this relationship that they develop. And I think that that's key. And that is something you don't always find in movies like this, in crime thrillers. A lot of times the relationships feel much more shallow. And I feel like there are specific scenes in this movie that really push the depth. And they're done so tactfully, so they're so short. There's, you know, the moment of Pitt's wife calling and asking him to just give the phone to Somerset. And he's like, what the hell? <laughs> you know, and they've been kind of going at it a little bit. And I love the fact, I love the fact that the whole film, the first half or so, you know, Mills always has respect for Somerset. Even when he's disagreeing with him and arguing and saying, no, you need to give me a shot. Like he, he still always respects the fact of what he's accomplished feels like. Like he understands this is an elder. So he's not quite to that annoying level of hotshot. Sometimes we get these hotshot characters of cops or detectives where they're a-holes, essentially. Like, they're hard to root for, right? Because they treat people like dirt that came before them. Pitt doesn't do that. He definitely wants his shot, and he's going to fight for it, but he never discounts 
Somerset in a way that is disrespectful to me. And so anyway, we get these moments where this happens and they end up going over to the house and almost my connecting point was just the laugh, the laugh moment at the dinner table with Gwyneth Paltrow's character with Pitts, with uh, Mills's wife. And when the train goes by and Somerset for the first time, we see him like laugh and smile and he's connecting with her and there's just a change in their relationship. And you can feel that as it develops. And I think all of that, their interplay, the way that the script is amazing, by the way, the screenplay, you know, is very important for this, but the way in which their relationship develops gives the movie the weight that we need for a crime thriller for the ending to work the way it does. Because you know that the characters actually are not just two cops on a beat together. There's something deeper there between them. Yeah, and I think Gwyneth Paltrow's character, that dinner scene was necessary in order to get us to connect with them, not just as partners, but as decent friends. Because... If we've seen the, in the past with crime dramas, whether it's on TV shows or movies, your partner becomes your brother or your sister over time. Well, we didn't have much time to get these two characters together. And I think having that, that dinner scene and being able to see that kind of chemistry build up from that moment was beneficial because by the end of the movie, we had connections with both Somerset and Mills individually but also together like we genuinely saw that they cared for each other to an extent that they could with the limited amount of time i mean they'd only been working together for less than a week so there's not a lot of history there but there's enough and i think fincher does a fantastic job of placing the scenes where he does and putting them in those domestic situations where they have those interpersonal connections and i think paltrow's character is a is the glue for that yeah, she really is. Absolutely. Um, she gives the film something that can't exist without it being there. It's a very masculine movie. It is. Point blank. And I think, to be obvious, she brings a femininity to it that is necessary. She brings a soft touch to this otherwise harsh world. And it's very much necessary. Absolutely. I also think that the tension in the film is what really Fincher does differently than some other directors do. Like this is a talent. I don't know what else to call it other than talent, because it's something that so many people try to do to build this type of tension and they just don't succeed in the way that he does. And I think that a lot of the way that he creates this tension is by keeping action scenes minimal. There's only one real extended sequence of any note in this movie that has a chase or guns. There's no shootouts going on every, you know, half hour or something. It's just when they encounter John Doe for the first time and everything is built up to that moment and then it explodes. And I'm wondering if there's something about that procedural dramatic approach that ratchets up the tension in a way that movies that give us more action are unable to do. Well, when you can sit in that kind of tension for a while, it allows your mind to really fill in the gaps that otherwise action sequences pretty much distract you from. I think it's why we consider high-level action to be popcorn fodder or turn-your-brain-off cinema, 
because of the fact that there isn't a lot of thought that goes not that didn't go into choreography because there is. But as you're watching it on the big screen, you don't have to focus in on a bullet going into a person's chest. I mean, when you see someone like Dwayne Johnson take a shotgun and blow somebody away, you're not focused on, well, did he hit the right artery? Is that real? No, you're focused on the fact that this guy's like flying 20 feet backwards because he got shot with a 12 gauge. When you're dealing with these procedural dramas where the focus is really more on the puzzle solving and the conversations and these like long silent beats, it allows you as an audience to say, you know, I wonder what they're thinking or I wonder what's going through their mind as they're walking through this apartment. And it builds up that tension in you as a spectator. It honestly reminds me a lot of why I have I have trouble with jump scare horror movies because of that tension that leads up to what I know is coming because I'm filling in those gaps and wondering what's going to happen. And then, of course, it happens. And now that image is stuck with me. And I think for for most of the audience that enjoys movies like this, they enjoy that tension because they enjoy filling in those gaps. They enjoy solving the puzzles and going along with these guys to try to figure out what the answer is. Memento is a great example of that because you have the unreliable narrator and you're trying to figure out the mystery along with the main character, but you're trying to fill in gaps too, just like he is. In the same way here, you got Somerset and Mills who are walking through each of these crimes, which by the way, none of which I think had involved bullets or guns. They were all creatively done. And I think that that is another element of how the tension gets ratcheted up because you never actually see the crime happen. You see the aftermath and you fill in those gaps. Yeah, for sure. I completely agree with you. Um, The way that they are done is incredibly creative and smart. It's a grotesque, but once you understand the meaning and the purpose behind them, they're not done strictly as torture. They're done as what John Doe sees as justice and as some sort of, you know, cleansing for a sin. So they're purposeful in the way that they are crafted. And one of the things I love about this and the way that the tension goes down in these crime thrillers is when we really get good, solid, figuring it out scenes. And I feel like this movie has a lot of those, particularly the things that stand out to me. I really enjoy the back and forth showing of the two detectives similarly trying to figure out Dante um, with Mills at home in front of the TV um, and then with Somerset in this grandiose library with classical music on. Uh, and then ultimately it leads up to the, some of the very briefest moments of levity that we get in seven where, you know, Mills has a cop deliver him a bag in the rain of cliff notes for Dante so that he can act like he knows what he's talking about. Things like that, that helping them solve the puzzles when they figure out the murder with the nose. Uh, I think it's pride and are explaining why he did what he did and how she was given the choice. I I love that. And I just enjoy that aspect of these movies, but it just, it all builds and it builds and it builds and it builds and it builds. And this tension for me, the moment that they see 
doe in that corridor right before he shoots at them, it is so much more impactful than a full-on guns blazing shootout because they're just sitting there ready to go in the door and boom, there he is. And the audience recognizes it as, as the characters are recognizing it and we're right there with them. And so it's this very short, very violent, long, not short and long. It's this very violent and somewhat long dramatic chase sequence, but it works so well at making you feel absolutely terrified because of what you know. You've, you've gone literally two thirds of the movie just with this guy as a ghost. And then all of a sudden now he's here and you realize he's more than just a silent killer of other people. Like he is an actual foe in danger to the two detectives themselves. And that really gets under the skin of the viewer. And then when he walks into that police station is another moment because we know how smart he is. We understand that he's done all of these incredible things and he's gotten away with it to this point. So for him to turn himself in feels really awkward and our brains are turning. And for me, watching a character like Mills react just like the character of Mills would, you know, get down on the ground right now, like just immediately act like a cop with your gun out. My mind is not even worried about that. My mind is like, why is he here? What's the bigger motive? What's the plan going on? And so if that tension stays there and that grin that he gives just makes it oh even more gripping. Seeing Kevin Spacey in this young role, and he reminded me a lot of, I guess it was James McAvoy in Split, and maybe it was because he didn't have a lot of hair, but it's that it's that blank stare that he gives that he does really well. He does the same thing in um, in the usual suspects as verbal Kent, just this real blank stare, whatever, rarely ever smiling. And that moment that he comes in and, you know, he gets down on the ground and you see his fingers bleeding and you come to find out how, you know, what's happened, how he's just pulled the skin off of his or burned the skin off of his fingers so there's no fingerprints it just further goes to exemplify how smart he is and how well thought out his whole plan is and so us being the omniscient you know person here we know oh this is about to this is about to get really really bad but we don't realize how bad it gets until obviously the the very end and i think what fincher does really well is he allows us to just sit in that for as long as we need to. I almost didn't want the shootout because it almost didn't seem necessary. But at the same time, I have to realize that you needed that not for action's sake, but to give them some thing to go back to and say, hey, he was right in front of us and then have to make that connection. It's part of that discovery that Fincher is, is doing so much of in this movie. So, I want to ask you how you feel about his murders. And <laughs> that sounds like a pretty easy question on the surface. Like, uh, they're awful <laughs> and they're terrible. But he believes he is delivering justice. Almost like, I would say, a holy warrior of sorts. He is fighting against what he sees as nothing but a cynical world that has come to accept the evil of the way that they act and that they live. 
do you think that there's any way we can understand slash agree with his perspective? Do the punishments even slightly fit the quote-unquote crime, or I guess in his case, sins? I think they make sense in light of what is being done to each victim. They are grotesque. They are cruel. But they're consistent. There's not... To to take a page out of our faith, I think as Christians we tend to kind of one-up certain sins over another. We tend to say, oh, it's okay to steal the pencil, but if you talk about this alcohol or that particular thing, we amp up certain types of sin more than others. And I think what John Doe does here is he says, nope, we've got seven sins here and they're all equally bad and they're all equally needing to be rectified. Now, he doesn't go across and he's not a Protestant Christian trying to redeem or trying to squelch every kind of sin. He's looking at the seven here. But the fact is, he treats them all very equally. And he treats them all in a way that is equally punishable, which tells me that however he's getting his information, whether it's divine or insane or whatever, he doesn't see any one as more important than the other. He sees what he's doing as right but he doesn't see any of his victims as being any less or more deserving than the other. And I think there's in a sick sense, not sixth sense, but in a sick sense, there is something noble about that. The fact that he's able to have objectivity with all of his victims. Yeah, I would agree. I would say that I think you nailed it with that last sentence and that there is something to be, applauded in the fact that he recognizes that what he chooses to do with that information and that feeling is obviously incorrect. It's like anything else in life. You can have a thought and acting on said thought is what creates a bigger problem or the, the, the actual sin or in, in some cases, not necessarily, but in you know the crime in many cases. And, he actually calls it out very specifically at one point. He says, we see a deadly sin on every street corner and every home, and we tolerate it because it's commonplace and because it's trivial. And that's speaking to what you're saying is how we don't take them seriously. We don't care that we're prideful because that's not stealing. That's not murder. But if we were going to hold firm to what he believes and he's got his putting his faith in and that these are the seven deadly sins, then you would have to equate them to the same weight. And therefore he's trying to make that point. And I think when he does that, it presents a really interesting scenario and a intriguing thought game in a sense. I wonder if you agree with him or not in that, he, he is insistent that his crimes will be remembered and studied forever. And he says that they will have value because they will help people change how they act in the future. If you, if this was a true story, if John Doe really lived and, you know, actually committed these murders in this way, do you think that people in today's society, present day, 
would be analyzing and obsessing over what he did in the way that he expects them to? Do you think it would be impactful? And what does your answer say about our society? I think to go back to my one word takeaway, I think I would agree with Mills that he's a t-shirt at best because of the fact that we, we live in a world that has enough fake news out there to make us believe nothing and everything all at once. I just commented last week on a documentary about the fire festival that marketed this amazing experience. It turned out to be a fraud and not to say that if this guy actually existed and did these things, would it be life changing? I think it would make an impact for a time, but he would be right up there with David Koresh and Jeffrey Dahmer, you know, these guys that did incredible things and sadistic things and they made an impact and they're remembered. But we're talking about nine 11 level impact here where it changes the way we fly. It changes the way we handle security. It changes the way we, we look at the world and look at other cultures for better or for worse. I think if this guy existed, he would be considered what Mills calls just insane because he doesn't fit the status quo of what a normal person would be. And because I think what he does is an exception to the rule. Again, I think it's, it's like Raskolnikov in, uh, in Dostoevsky's book. I think he feels like he's extraordinary. And if he feels that way and he sees himself that way, then he actually is, but the rest of the world doesn't care. And so he's a suit at this point to everyone else until it impacts a person or a group of people. If this were a nationwide or a global thing where he had disciples and he had other folks that were serializing these kinds of murders and replicating these things across, absolutely. But his impact is seven people and it's confined to one city. And so he might be remembered, but it's, it wouldn't leave a lasting impact, in my opinion. So I'm pretty much similar and on the same page, I think. I wholeheartedly believe he is correct that it would be studied and analyzed simply for the creativity and uniqueness of the situation. And because we live in a world that is obsessed with true crime, podcasts, TV shows all over the place that are digging into serial killers and their motives and trying to understand them, I think we have a world that, for some reason, a lot of people, I don't want to misspeak or use the wrong words here, but some people kind of get off on that in, in a way. They, they get entertainment out of seeing these real-life stories and being shocked by them. I don't know that there's any impact that would have on them going forward, though, um, like you said, and, you know, we live in a world where mass shootings happen quite frequently, and no matter what side of the gun debate you fall on, we seem to not be able to make distinguishable steps forward to start stopping these things as a whole, as a whole society. So for me to think that, yes, one man and one set of crimes of seven people, seven kills, would actually create that when something like mass shootings haven't been able to unite us in some form. I, yeah, that's a long shot and it's completely unbelievable. I also think Mills has a moment in the film where he speaks to that, the cynical nature of the world that 
they live in and, and we also live in, he's telling this story. It's again, almost like a connecting point, but it was really emotional. He's just casually talking to Somerset, asking him if he's ever been shot. And he says, no. And Mills says, yeah, he's, he's been shot at. And someone right next to him got shot. And he ended up riding in the ambulance with him. And he's just, the way he's relaying the story was really kind of heartbreaking because of how casual and just, he couldn't remember the details all, but, but he was riding in the ambulance with this man, this fellow officer, when he died right next to him. And he's just like racking his brain. And he's just saying, he says, Christ, what was his effing name? Like he couldn't remember the guy's name. He died sitting right next to him got shot right next to him and he couldn't remember this person's name. And it, so it fits the theme of what both of the detectives are realizing and what John Doe is preaching, like the victims, the police, everybody's nameless. And I think our society actually, while we aren't like fully in the rain and dark all the time uh, across the world, in a way it seems like that, like our response would be similar to that, I think. So yeah, I think we agree. Yeah, absolutely. And the fact that his name is John Doe, I think, is a little ironic, you know, in the fact that he doesn't, you know, he wants to be remembered or he thinks he's going to be remembered. And it's his acts that would be remembered, not him, which may be what he wants. But anyway. Yeah. I don't know. I think most sociopaths want some sort of attention from it in some way. So I don't know if that would be good enough, but it doesn't really matter because his plan is to get himself murdered and he wouldn't be there to know. True. Well, Somerset, uh, as a character, has a negative view of apathy. Almost as if it was an eighth sin. He hates it. But he's also sort of apathetic himself, and he's ready to be done with his work, and he's ready to be done with the world, and just go away and fade and hide and be done until he dies. Do you see any irony in that? And I'm wondering what you think will happen after the events of Seven. Like, do you see Somerset as a character changing in any way? because of what takes place? I know we're projecting, but... Yeah, I, I think he changes, but I think he changes in a way that at the beginning of the film, he's ready to be done, but the last line, or one of the last lines of the movie, really hints at the fact that he's he has a sense of needing to keep going. Maybe not to avenge Mills. I I don't think that's it, but it's this weird shift where I think he's gone from, I enjoy, I, I'm ready to be done because I feel the weight of all of this to the weight is still there, but it's driving me to make the world a little bit better after these events. And so he's really kind of, restructured what he sees as apathy. He sees it as a motivator to say, I'm not looking to make the world a happy place, but I feel like my impact on the world could make some kind of mark. I don't know if it's going to be major. I don't know if it's going to be minor, but I think I need to just keep going because it looks as though he's not going to retire. Like he's just going to still be around in some capacity. So I feel like, He's found a new purpose uh, throughout the events of this. And I don't think it's changed his outlook on the world, but I think it's changed. I think his purpose has changed. I would agree with that. I think 
maybe because I want to believe that, I need some hope. And it's not really given to us by Fincher necessarily. And I want to read into the movie in a way that provides that for me to take away. I think that there's a moment that he has with Mills towards the end of the film, before the death, of course, that maybe speaks some to that. He's Mills is getting really upset with the photographer. And he says, that's okay. He's Mills is apologizing to him. He says, that's okay. It's impressive to see a person feeding off their emotions. And I think, in a way, Mills and his, you know, his nature, his passion for everything has done something to Somerset and kind of reignited him a little bit and given him hope going forward, maybe. Uh, even if the world is bleak, that a person like that could exist and maybe he's going to try to be a part of that change and not let it all go. One thing that I find really interesting is how similar Somerset feels to Sheriff Tom Bell that we just talked about in No Country for Old Men last week. It's fascinating that these two movies were picked back to back. And I think I, I joked about this earlier in the intro where it just, it almost feels like our listeners have a cynicism problem perhaps or something. But I wondered if you saw any of those similarities like I did and what you kind of, if you had any thoughts on like the two of them as the same type of character. Well, I think they both ended up in the same place where they had this view of the world and were really just sort of reluctant to move forward. They were ready to kind of put an end to things, not necessarily with their lives, but with their careers. And while Tom Bell did that, you know, he retired and made himself free of that. I think that they looked at the world around them as a means to hope that it would get better, or at least that their place in it would get better. I couldn't help but feel a sense of awkward hope from either one of them, from the last little monologues that each one of them gave. And I think you're right. I think our viewers are nuts in the way that they pick these movies. Now, they're fantastic, but uh, but there might be a cynicism problem out there. So, listeners, if you need help, we're listening. You know, that kind of thing. We're listening but to listeners, yes. We're listening to listeners. <laughs> but yeah, I think, I think both Somerset and Bell saw the world one way, and by the by the end of the movie, there's a small glimmer of hope amidst a world that is so full of problems. And even though one has an opportunity to change or be an active part of it more so than the other, I think both of their outlooks are pretty similar. Yeah, I do too. And especially with the voiceover for Somerset at the end, it's almost I think you I think you worded it well, saying it's an awkward hope. It's a Hope that is almost, it give, you get a sense that both men have fully accepted, not embraced, but accepted the reality of the, the evil in the world that they live in. And that to some extent, they're not going to beat it themselves in their lifetimes, that it's going to continue and that people are going to have to deal with this for a long time, probably forever. And it's, Almost like the monologue that Tom Bell gives about the dreams and then the quote that Somerset references by Hemingway, it's like they're trying to force themselves to believe. It's almost like they're trying to convince themselves 
of hope, if that makes sense. You really just feel like they're characters that are just dangling by a thread and really trying to have faith, even though they, they don't have a lot of reason to. Yeah, there's a there's an activity with that, but it's an activity driven by a, a need and and really more of a a reluctance than just trudging through life and accepting the fact that life sucks. I mean, I think in some ways it's it's a realistic kind of hope. It's like when you're in a traumatic event in your life and it leads to all these different negative things, but you realize that this is life, such as life, say la vie. And you're not just a passenger in this, that you're going, okay, it sucks, but it's still my life and I'm still going to be okay with it because it will get better. I don't even know if they have that idea that it will get better. And it's, it's weird because that would be my motive. Well, it's just a season. It's just a season. But for these guys, it seems like this is what life is. And I know that by complaining about it or by trying to live in it with a negative attitude is not going to make it better. So I might as well make the best of it. I think that's kind of the attitude that I sense from both of them. Yeah, I would agree with that. Well, shifting over to Mills for a little bit, he really does have this common movie trope role where he's this new hotshot cop or detective. He's idealistic. He's coming in and having to work with an elder and take advice from him. For some reason, I got a lot of Training Day vibes. I know it's a different scenario, different relationship between the rookie and the seasoned detective, of course. But there's some similarities there in the way that someone's coming on the beat and not really prepared for what they're going to see, but yet they think they are, and their world is sort of turned upside down because of it. I'm wondering if we could learn any lessons, kind of take a page out of Don Shanahan's book, and every movie has a lesson, from the way that Mills approaches his first case. Like, if you were Mills, Patrick, what would you have done differently, or what should you have done differently? I carried an umbrella, I think, because he was just getting completely. (laughs) I think if I look at the way in which he approached it, I would say to just shut up and listen and to leave my ego at the door. It seemed as though I may have missed this and just inferred or I may have been completely spot on that he wanted to be a part of this beat because he was tired of desk job he was tired of kind of going through the essential ritualistic rookie stuff and someone who says i'm ready i'm ready i'm ready he wanted to be thrown into the deep end of the pool because he thought he could handle it and i think when you are not listening to the guy who's been in this for years and years and years and you think that you know everything you run the risk of getting yourself hurt getting your partner hurt and eventually getting someone close to you hurt. Yeah, I would agree. And obviously that happens as well in the movie. I think that there are several things. One, he could have definitely listened more and talked less. He needed to trust Somerset. I don't think that he needed to not be on the case. I think that there's some overreaction by Somerset as well. Um, I think that 
Mills is genuinely ready to be there and serve and solve this case. He just needs to slow down and be willing to maybe see things from multiple perspectives. He only gets one view of the situation, and that thing that he's locked into starts to become his obsession. And that's what it sort of starts to turn into. It all, it all comes from a good place of him wanting to stop future murders. There's nothing wrong with his drive and his passion. He's a very good man. Um, I love a couple moments. One, there's this great conversation outside of John Doe's door after the chase. And he is absolutely furious. Mills, that is. He's covered in blood. It's a great scene, the way it's shot. Just looking at him soaking wet, covered in blood after having had this gun at his temple. You can feel so strongly like the breakdown that is taking place in him. His His psyche is just fracturing right there. And he's wanting to go in that room, right? He wants to go in and get evidence. And Somerset tells him that they need a warrant. And that if they go inside, they'll never be able to prosecute. It's a very common thing in, in police procedural films and detective movies where if you do this thing and break this rule, you might catch the criminal, but you're not going to be able to do anything about it because of the way that the law works. It's this ethical conundrum. And what does he do in this midst of this huge argument? He kind of bounces around, turns around, and then bam! He just kicks the door in, and I love it because he just kind of casually looks at Somerset and he says, well, no point in arguing anymore unless you can fix that. And he just makes that decision, right? And I really believe that that choice escalates them on the path to what ultimately happens at the end of this film because because at that point you have taken everything else off the table, essentially you've you've come into the situation where you know the lawyer for John Doe explains like all of these ways he's going to be able to get out of this and Mills needed to listen to the veteran in that moment and all it all it would have required Patrick was a little bit of patience they could have come back with a warrant pretty darn quickly you know post up man get a chair and sit outside the darn door and wait while you get the warrant and someone comes back there's a million ways that could have gone but he got Excited, he was in the heat of the moment, and he pushed his way through. I think that that was a key point where he needed to take the veteran's advice. And, you know, would it have changed the outcome? Maybe, maybe not. I like to think that it would have shown some growth in his character. (laughs) Sure, but I think it really set the stage for the finale and how he ended up reacting to what happened at the end of the movie. I think it was very much a foreshadowing and a, a small scale representation of who he was and how Somerset called attention to the fact that he's driven by emotion. And in some ways it's a good thing. Other ways it's not. In that particular case, having the ability and patience to wait things out and look at the world like Somerset does as a seasoned police officer knowing that, hey, if we spend some time getting this information and getting this warrant, it's going to pay off dividends. Instead, we have Mills acting like a six or seven year old who's like, I want it now. I want that instant gratification of being able to solve the problem all centralized around his emotion. It's very much 
a peek into what we see later on near the end of the movie. One of the other moments, though, that I love about Mills, and I want to just point this out because I think we're going to wrap it, wrap it up or talk about the ending next, is there's a great scene right before they leave for the climax. And they're in the bathroom, and they're getting their wiretaps on. This was almost my connecting point, too. Mills is about to say something to Somerset. He says, you know, and then he trails off. And he never finishes his sentence, Patrick. And for me, like, I really honed in on that, on this viewing. It really made me think about all the things left unsaid, right? That people pass away unexpectedly all the time. And what was it that Mills wanted to say to Somerset? What would his words have been and how would that have affected Somerset? Not just in the moment that was about to take place, but in his life going forward. Um, what could it have changed? And it just, it was a really strong kind of thing for me to see that play out that way, that there is always this regret that we tend to have if we don't leave it all on the table with someone when we can. And so it was a reminder to me, uh, the lesson takeaway was really just that don't do that. <laughs> you know, if if there's something on your heart, say it. You may feel like it's not the right time, but you don't know that there's going to be another opportunity for there to be a better time. So, especially, yeah, especially in the line of work that they're in. And where they're is, heading. Yeah, especially yeah, exactly. where they're heading. Exactly. So I just, I really liked that quiet little moment between the two of them. And it, seriously, I still, I'm still curious. Like, I wonder what he would have said. Mm-hmm. Well, the other mystery in this movie, <laughs> the big one, what's in the box? Well, <laughs> this phrase is part of the cultural zeitgeist. It is so well known that many people who probably have never even seen Seven are familiar with that phrase and probably the twist of what it means. It gives us one of the great movie moral dilemmas, and it gets us thinking while also you know, provoking like some major sympathy because Doe's plan is brilliant, and it works to perfection throughout the movie. never falters. My question to you, for us both, is, is Mills justified in killing John Doe? And what would Patrick do if he was Mills and in this exact same situation? Well, let me just say that the facial expression on Pitt's face going back and forth the almost is, about to shoot and then yes. pulling himself back to reality. I, I, that yeah. was powerful to me as well. Y- years ago when I saw this, I remember that moment distinctly from this movie. Like there was nothing else that stood out apart from that facial expression, that back and forth. And this coming from a, a young version of me who didn't care much about the emotional takeaway of movies and wasn't even thinking about this podcast by any means that says a lot about Brad Pitt and the direction that, that Fincher had for him to be able to react that way. Saying that I think it would be reflected in my own life to respond that way, because here you have a guy who really is split down the middle He's trying to do the right thing, and yet he's just found out that his wife is dead 
his pregnant wife is dead. I honestly, Aaron, would have shot him. No questions asked. To me, morality is thrown out the window, and I'm going for personal justice at that point. It's not a question, but I also know that I'm not a cop, that I don't have an oath that I live by. My faith could probably be a, an, another comparison to that. I don't know that I could hold myself back from doing something like that because of how emotionally connected I was in that way, especially having a six-year-old son and thinking, oh my gosh, if that would have happened, would I have been able to hold myself together? It makes me wonder what would have happened at the end of the movie, how I would have responded to the end of the movie had he not. Because I remember watching it this time around and going and being kind of surprised that he did because we're, we're kind of used to that in certain, certain plots where somebody's faced with a hard decision and they end up making the quote right choice. So what does that say to me that, Oh, cinematically was that the wrong choice? And so it, it still leaves me with that dilemma, as you mentioned, but I think for me personally, I don't know that I could make the, make a different decision than what he did. Well, I'm right there with you. I don't think I would have hesitated. I like to, I'll admit that I probably wouldn't have even given it the one or two maybes that he does in that awesome bit of acting where he's going through the, I'm about to do this thing. And then reality is hitting me and I'm trying to talk myself out of it, but I, it's so strong that I can't, that force is taking me over. I think I would have done it pretty quickly. And I think in hindsight, I would have felt justified because I was taking evil off of this earth. And if it meant sacrificing my own life in a sense, as I knew it, um, I'd already lost quote unquote everything um, for me on the earth. And I would have felt somewhat like I'm a holy warrior myself, kind of contrary to what Doe thinks he is um, in doing that. And I love this movie because it makes me realize that and makes me wonder why that, why that is. And, how I can change, because I don't necessarily think that's the right thing to do. I'm not sitting here telling you that I would propose that everyone react that way, but it's just a fact that we both would. And it also gives us all this room for questions, I think. Um, you know, Doe's plan relies on them opening the box. It makes me think about all these little details. What if they didn't open the box? What if the driver was late? You know, everything goes right. And... What if, what if they assumed it was a bomb? This movie was in 1997. And so I think it was before, or 95, right? 95. I think it was before road bombs in Iraq had become such a big thing in media coverage. But what if this movie was made similarly now? There's no way you would just open the box, right? You'd need a bomb squad. He would have run away from that box. And I feel like there's all these things that could have stopped this from happening in the moment. Um, but it all goes wrong. And so my other question to you is, what if you were Somerset? Like, how would you have handled this if you were Somerset? Do you think he did the right thing? By telling Mills what was in the box? Essentially, or, yeah. Or, just or, the, or, his, or, his entire reaction is just... He immediately starts running 
at Mills, which tips him off. He could have not said anything. He could have calmly walked back. But his demeanor, in my opinion, escalates the situation further. I think he tipped his hand with that reaction. And this is one of the first times that I think Somerset had lost his cool, had lost his stability in this relationship. And again, I think it's a credit to Morgan Freeman as an actor because we're given this one stoic, complex individual, and then it's lost the moment that he opens up the box and sees what he does and starts freaking out. And to me, I think that loses a, a little bit of trust with Mills because Mills has gotten to know this guy for the last week. And he said, okay, he's doing this. He's freaking out. Something's wrong. And then he starts interrogating Doe. And of course, much to, to Joe's perfect plan, that's what he's, he's supposed to do. And he finds out about that. So, I think that even for Somerset, maybe Doe even knew what buttons to push for him. At the same time, though, Aaron, I got to think there's a moment when he's on the when Doe's on the phone with Mills and he said, I had to adjust my plans. So because you you messed them up, the big action chase sequence, it makes me wonder, was Mills the target all along or was it someone else? I don't know. I feel like. That was kind of a new thing, but it played itself out really well. Independent of that, I think Somerset's reaction was genuine, but I also think it provided Mills with a bad sense of urgency, like something's wrong and I don't want to, I, I don't know what to do here. And I think it threw him off too. Yeah, I do too. And I also wonder what would happen to Mills after the credits do roll. Does he go to jail? Does he end up taking the insanity plea that we heard the lawyer proposing for John Doe. Is there some irony in that? If that's the way it goes down, uh, is he kind of absolved of this murder in the court of law? Like what happens to him in the court of public opinion? How does that play out? I think that in today's world, in a world of social media, he would be championed for his vigilante act by a mass amount of people and that his trial would be enormously covered and have all kinds of media attention and people on both sides trying to use him as a platform for their own beliefs. There would be a side that is claiming righteousness and that he should be punished regardless. And there would be a side that was equally vehemently disagreeing with that claiming that he was doing the right thing. Uh, it's fascinating to me to imagine the events of this movie, not necessarily the movie being made in 2019, but like the events of it taking place in a modern world. If that makes sense. I think his story would be legendary, just like Doe's. And I think it would be elevated to the same degree that Doe's was maybe not necessarily something that would go down in history as like a culture changing event. But it would be, again, that wow factor for several months and then kind of make its way back to the back page of the newspaper at some point. And then we'd all forget about it. Yep. yep. Until it pops up in a podcast five, six, exactly. seven years later for people. Because, to of, the, because of the movie rights. The that, movie you know, rights got sold. The, yeah. so, yeah. Somebody's making a movie, yeah. Well, the last thing I want to do before connecting point is that go over some of the alternate endings. This movie is famous for having several of them that were 
discussed uh, over the years by Fincher himself and some of the actors. And I just want to read through some of these, and I want your thoughts on what you think about them, and I'll give mine as well. So alternate ending number one, the race to save Tracy's life. In this alternate ending, um, the studio had rejected the head in the box, and they wanted something else. So Mills and Somerset end up on this race to save her from John Doe, who is about to kill her. Um, and we don't know exactly how that would have happened, but instead of getting the scenario where we do with just the three of them, it's them on this chase to save her life. What do you think about that? Eh, very much a trope, very much something that you'd seen before. And I think it would have taken away from the artistry of the, the seven killings for the seven deadly sins. I don't know how, like what would she have represented in terms of the killing? I would be, I'd be questioning that. I agree. I hate that honestly, and would have despised it because it wouldn't have fit at all with the tone of the movie. I don't think. The movie doesn't build itself tension-wise to a major chase sequence. We get that. And so then to turn around like pretty much right after we got the big one and do another one, it just would have really not worked for me. Alternate ending number two is Somerset kills John Doe. So after he discovers the head, um, he declares that he wants out, and he goes up and stops John Doe's plan by shooting him. Morgan Freeman has said that he really likes this because it allows Mills, the younger detective, to go on with his life. Um, but Brad Pitt has said that he doesn't think it ever would have worked because, like we both have said, that there's no way he thinks that Mills wouldn't have shot Doe for killing Tracy. Yeah, I don't know that... I kind of... Hmm. I would put myself in Freeman's camp because of the fact that his reaction was so emotionally triggered that when he ran, his emotions were not in check. So for him to shoot Doe would have been consistent in that one moment. And I think it would have further exemplified the fact that Doe got to him as well, that Doe allowed his emotions to get out of whack enough for him to make a choice that he would never have done otherwise. I agree. And I think that it would have worked and made sense, but I don't think it would have been nearly as impactful or lasting as impactful because I don't think if that happens, we aren't relating to Somerset as an audience because we aren't in summer. We can't put ourselves in Somerset's situation in the same way that we can put ourselves in Mills's situation. Right. Just to imagine this. Right. And that's where the power of the choice is, in my opinion, of the climax, is that we get to be Brad Pitt and Mills in that moment and think about what we would do. And it's, we're robbed of that if Somerset comes blazing in and solves the problem for us by killing him. So I don't like it for that reason, but I do personally like the redemptive nature of this old man who just wants to be done choosing to make this choice that essentially ends his life and takes away his retirement as he's been working for and as he is expecting it to be in order to save the other man. I also think there's a little bit of a false sense of security or false like hope there because we Mills still lost his wife and his baby. So he's not going to be the same guy. Exactly. It's not like what are you saving him for? Yeah. Exactly. Where, where, where is his redemption? Where is yeah. his justice? He doesn't have it because – the killing wasn't at his hand. It was at his partner's hand who isn't losing anything by killing him. 
Well, alternate ending three is a little less dramatic version. Um, I was reading about this. It says a test ending for seven was quickly shot after um, the sequence involving Somerset killing Doe was storyboarded. Um, and this is Mills killing John Doe, but it took out some of the more dramatic moment moments. Uh, apparently, the audience went nuts for this during the preview screenings, and they were really, really impressed with it. But they ultimately decided it needed that extra building of tension. So if you will, I guess, imagine the movie without some of those things like the pit back and forth, um, without some of the aerial shots that we get uh, circling them on the ground, watching as the, the van is coming down the road, not as dramatic, but just kind of quicker to the point. And I, I don't know why, but audience apparently really liked that. Well, the audience was stupid. I agree. Let's move on. <laughs> audience is dumb. Alternate inning number four was John Doe kills Mills, and then Somerset kills John Doe in retaliation. What do you think about that? No. No, 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 no. No, no I, I think that, again, that goes back to the first inning where I think his... I guess it would be consistent with his... the fact that he killed others but it's not because the the sins themselves don't line up to him like he has no reason to murder mills like mills is not doing anything wrong i think the at the end of the movie we get the indication that doe experienced envy and then the murder uh, and all that was done at the hands of Mills. I think had he done the killing, first of all, I think it would have to be some creative way to do that because it's everything else was creatively done. I mean, at this point, he'd what, have a gun and shoot him. I just I don't think it would have nearly the impact if he had taken out Mills and then subsequently been taken out by Somerset. I think it would have been like, okay, let's just wrap it up and we're done. Yeah, I mean, totally, 100% tropey at that point and it loses so much of the character that we've been building with John Doe if he goes to that direct means of murder when everything he's done has been creative and scripted and planned up until that point I mean he could have shot Mills in the head when he had him point blank on the ground for a good 60 seconds with a gun in his temple if he really wanted to kill him so that wouldn't have made any sense to me the alternate ending number five was Mills shoots Somerset um, we don't know a lot about this one. Um, we just get that Mills is upset and we end up having him shooting Somerset. Uh, it says the speculation for this is that Arlie Ermey's police captain comes into the hospital and presents Somerset with a letter from Mills that says, you were right. You were right about everything. Um, we believe this suggests that Mills killed Doe. Somerset and Mills then had a brief standoff because of that which resulted in Mills having to shoot some, uh, his partner, and then he becomes arrested. I don't like that. No, I don't like yeah. it either. Totally takes away the relationship that's been built for Mills and Somerset this whole yeah. time. Yeah, yeah. I think there was another ending that I had read where, like, Mills, Somerset, and Doe are all eating shawarma at the end of the movie. I, I don't know if that's one of them or not. I can't really validate that, but... I'd have watched it. 
post credits, maybe. That's post, what those are for. Post credits. This movie came too late. David Fincher has stated that his preferred ending of the film is the exact way it's shot, minus the Somerset quote that he gives from Hemingway. He says his original plan was to cut to black immediately after Mills shoots Doe in the head. And he wanted to stay on a black, dark screen in complete silence for a few moments before the credits started to roll to let it sink in. Unfortunately, the preview screenings, this didn't work because as soon as the movie ends, the lights popped on and people were rushing around handing the test viewers these comic cards. And so the effect wasn't there. And so the studio was like, no, we need you to provide a coda that gets us to the credits. And Pitt called it irrelevant. None of them liked it. Fincher has stated that he hates it the way it is. And Freeman has called it a cop-out. But they all ultimately relented to the studio and put that quote in there. So do you agree with Fincher? Do you think this film would have been better without the quote and a quick cut to black? I think it was fine with it until I saw No Country for Old Men and saw what the Coen brothers did. And at that point, I I would look back retrospectively and say, yes, that's absolutely a cop out. Because I think one of the strengths of No Country was that abruptness, that abrupt ending and not really getting an explanation and kind of filling in the gaps on your own. Having that for a movie like this, I think would have been even stronger of an ending and not have tried to wrap it up in maybe not a nice bow, but a decent bow, which I felt like that's what the ending of this movie was trying to do. Couldn't agree with you more. I would have loved this ending. Would I just, I love ambiguous endings, but I love endings that do this, that force you to sit there and go, what? That's it? And what happened to this guy? What did this guy feel? What did this guy do after that occurred? Much like we've just gone through and talked about on the podcast, what our presumptions are for both Mills and Somerset, they would have been even stronger and more affected if this had been the ending. So I really like Fincher's ending. I agree with him. And it's too bad that the studio forced him to put that in there. Because in hindsight, knowing what it could have been, I would agree with Morgan Freeman that making that quote be the last thing you hear, it does feel a bit like a cop-out. But I like to read it, as I said, you know, as them grasping at hope. And it works. It just doesn't work quite as well as it could have. I think it changes the tone a little bit. And the tone itself was fine, The what, what it was changed to. But knowing that that was another alternative, I think I would have preferred that one. Agreed. Yeah. Well, let's get to the connecting point and do that. Um, I'm going to let you go first because I think we have the same one. Okay. My big connecting point for the movie outside of the the box <laughs> was actually the conversation that John Doe had with Mills and Somerset on the way to the, um, the what I call the power line setting. And... The way in which Kevin Spacey's character explains how he came to be who he was, not necessarily historic, historically, but the way in which he calmly explains why he did what he did, he puts himself in a position of judge and jury, but in a way where I believe he says this, if not, I inferred it, that 
he doesn't take pleasure in what he does, that he feels a burden for justifying this retribution of these sins. The way in which he describes the, the first murder of this guy being so obese that it was sickening. You almost get the sense that he didn't want this life that he was given yet. He was asked to, and the way in which he does it is both out of anger and out of justification and also out of a sense of duty. And so watching him calmly explain to Mills his perspective, it gave me a sense of empathy for him, like someone who has this mission that he didn't want this burden of having to say, this is what I've been asked to do and I don't want to do it, but I'm willing to do it for the greater good. In a lot of ways, it reminded me of the feeling I got when Neil Armstrong took on that burden of the Apollo 11 flight and the way that Ryan Gosling portrayed him as a man who didn't ask to be put in the spotlight, but someone who was asked to be put in the spotlight and take on this great thing. And so he had this mission just like John Doe did. And it's only when Pitt starts kind of prodding at him that he starts kind of getting very angry and you almost see a sense of satisfaction of him saying it's going to end the way I'm seeing it end. I think there's something very creepy about the way Kevin Spacey puts this character in front of Mills and Somerset and watching how Mills, the emotionally charged hotshot reacts to him versus how Somerset does and seeing that almost reversed when the box is opened, how Somerset then becomes the emotional wreck and Mills does too, to an extent, but he feels there's that sense of control that he's trying to have before he eventually shoots him. But what I what I pulled from that conversation was the fact that you have a guy who had a plan and needed to see it, was compelled to see it to completion, even at the expense of his own life. Like it was a burden that was greater than his life. And I felt like he knew that from the very beginning when all this started. And therefore, none of that was what he may have wanted that he said, okay, this is what I'm supposed to be. This is who I'm, this is who I'm supposed to be. This is what I'm supposed to do. And whatever it takes, I'm going to get to this point, which told me that him going into the police station was, may not have been originally part of his plan, but it's again, what he needed to do. And I think that all culminated with this conversation. Yeah, I do too. We talked about it earlier a little bit and I, read that quote that he tells Mills in the car. He says, we see a deadly sin on every street corner in every home and we tolerate it because it's commonplace because it's trivial. And that's like when he's starting to get irritated because Mills is not seeing it. He's getting frustrated that this great grandiose plan is not being accepted for what he believes it is meant to be. And Mills just keeps calling him names and, and being very juvenile in his approach to the conversation, cutting him off, cussing at him. And I found it interesting, actually, in the notes you had written, John Doe's conversation with Somerset and Mills. And I was like, 
Somerset does nothing. And that is one of the things that I find very fascinating about this whole scene. Somerset just drives, dude. Like, he doesn't cut him off. I kept waiting this time around watching the movie. I was like, at some point, he shuts Mills up, right? Like, he's going to be like, just stop talking. Just be quiet. But he doesn't. And I wonder about that. I wonder why. I wonder if he knows it's not going to matter. Like, he's been through this and down this road. And so he's choosing not to get into it with Mills. He's letting Mills have his conversation with John Doe. But it's escalating, right? The tensions are escalating and getting higher and higher. And uh, and I really like it because of the way that he's committed. And, and Stacey's performance in that scene is phenomenal, right? He's so good. Whatever his personal life is aside, acting-wise, you know, he's incredible. And he really shows it there. Just both of them, the interplay, getting under Mills's skin, it really, I think, sets the tone for what's going to happen. Absolutely. Gets Mills to that point where he can be enraged enough that he's going to pull that trigger. So, yeah, I love that as well. Very much so. Great movie. Really great movie. You called it a classic at the beginning of this, and I would absolutely agree with that. Yeah, I think Fincher's a master, and this is... I'm not going to call it his masterpiece because he's still alive, <laughs> but it's uh, it's up there with with his with one of his best, if not his best. Well, that wraps up another episode here at Feelin' Film and this year's Director Battle Month. Hopefully, your picks made it all the way to the final four, and if not, know that 2020 is only a year away. Coming up this week, we have our monthly donor pick covering the 80 year old classic, The Wizard of Oz, courtesy of our Feelin' Film patrons. And following that, soon after, we will be doing a bit of a retrospective on 2009's Year in Film as part of our bonus content. Then we kick off football season with a favorite of ours, Varsity Blues, having guest host J.B. Huffman on, and an excuse to dip into our fun southern accents. And hopefully, you will want our life. You know. Anyway, Aaron, thank you for another great conversation, and we'll talk soon. Hey everyone, thanks again for listening. If you enjoy the show, we'd love to hear from you. You can leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you're listening. These help increase visibility for the show and grow our community of listeners like you. We also invite you to connect with us further by joining our ever-growing Facebook discussion group. A link to that is in the show notes, or you can just search on Facebook and find us that way. If you'd like to continue the conversation with me, you can follow the show on Twitter, at Film. Or connect with me in the Facebook group. I'm very active in both places and would love to chat. And if you want to connect with me, you can find me at Shoeless Patch on both Facebook and Twitter. Be sure to tag me in any comments so that I'll be notified and not miss you. Once again, thank you for listening. We'll be back soon. Until then, stay positive. And keep feeling filmed.